All right, and welcome back to Pints and Politics. This evening, joining me in the studio are four representatives from unions involved in the education sector. We have Dave Warda from OSSTF, Robin Clement from OECA, OECTA, Shirley Bell from the FTO, and Laura Walton from QP. Welcome all. Thank you. Now, these, of course, are busy and indeed important times for the movement, but before we get into the uh, the Ontario government and what's going on, could you just give us a bit of a background on each of your unions and how your union is involved in education? Anyone can go first. All right, so I, I represent uh, OACTA. Uh, provincially, we represent about 45,000 different professionals across the province. Uh, locally here in PVNC, our board, uh, we have about 15,000 students under um, umbrella through 36 schools. So, so this is the separate school board? Yes, that's, that's right. Okay. Sorry, okay. yeah, Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. Right, that's right, right. yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm uh, the secondary vice president on our local executive. So. Great. Okay. Someone else? Hey, Bill. I'm Dave Warda. I'm the president of the uh, OSSTF. That's the Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, provincially, we represent about 70,000 uh, different uh, education workers, but locally, we represent secondary teachers, and we have about 750 locally. Now, Dave, you, you said education workers. Does that include, is that teachers and education assistants? Uh, it's education assistants. It is office and clerical. It is custodial in some places. We even have transportation bus drivers, university instructors, oh. and uh, sociologists and psychologists in some areas. So, like, all sorts of different education workers are represented by OSSDF. Wonderful. Thank you. So I'm Shirley Bell and uh, pleased to be here. So I am the president of the Cortha Pine Ridge Teachers Federation for uh, for our area. Um, locally, I represent about 1,300 uh, elementary school teachers. Provincially, we represent about 83,000 education workers. We are the biggest education federation in uh, Canada. Um, and our education workers covers teachers, it covers occasional teachers, it covers uh, some uh, DECEs, dedicated early childhood educators, it covers um, PSPs and ESPs, uh, which are education support workers. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So <laughs> lots of acronyms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so currently, I, I mean, ETFO is, uh, ETFO is 20 years. We're celebrating 20 years. Prior to that, we were... Um, had two different federations. We had the Ontario um, Public School Federation and we had the Women's Federation that joined together 20 years ago to create ETFO. So if I'm hearing correctly, the only people that so far, the three of you who have gone, uh, Dave, Robin and Shirley, the only people you don't represent are the principals. Is that right? That's the only. Great. Okay, and Laura, please. So, Laura Walton, I am the president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions. So, that is all of the education workers represented in the school board sector under CUPE. So, CUPE is a very large union. We represent about 625,000 people across all of Canada. Um, but our education sector specifically is 55,000 in Ontario. We are all just education workers. So we do not represent teachers or principals or directors, superintendents. So if you define who's an education Education. Worker? So locally, that would be our custodians, our educational assistants, our, dedica- our, our designated early childhood educators, clerical, okay. IT, uh, child and youth worker, library worker, uh, 
speech pathologists, uh, communication disorder assistants, um, behavior assistants, anyone who's not a teacher locally would be, and working in the school board system, uh, either Catholic or public, would be us. So if I'm understanding you correctly, in, if we went into one of uh, Dave's schools or one of Robin's schools, my members would your be members proudly be there too. providing the services there. And if we went into one of Shirley's schools... My members would be, be proudly providing the services okay. there. Yeah. And if we went into Robbins, same sort of situation. Great. Thank you. Uh, and again, the only people that no one in the room represents are the principals and vice principals. That's, right. yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Now, there was a huge demonstration last Saturday, uh, April 6th, at Queen's Park. Um, press said there are 30,000 people there. Uh, were any of you there? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think what? we were all there, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one who wasn't there. Uh, yeah. What was that like? If we could start. Um, I actually spoke at it. Okay. Um, so standing in front of 30,000 people, hugely empowering. You spoke to 30,000? Yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, so hugely empowering, but also with the acknowledgement that that's just the beginning. Like right. we've just started. Yes. Um, this is this is not the end for sure. Yeah, and I think it was really heartening to see also it wasn't just teachers out there. It was parents, students, uh, and any other kind of education workers as well. So it, it was heartening to see all that many people come out um, together and, and to fighting this government's changes. Right. Surely. Yeah, I would um I, I would echo that actually. I think it was really nice for the for uh, one of the first times I think locally we actually partnered with um our uh separate school affiliate and um OSSTF and um sent six buses to um Queens Park. And it was it was pretty empowering. It was really crowded. Once you got your little piece of grass, you kinda stayed there and held your flag and uh, maintained that little bit of real estate. Right. Now I, I'm getting ahead of our uh, agenda, such as it isn't um, so far, but given that experience, what's your sense of the readiness of the public, certainly the professionals in the education sector, but just everyone, to stand up on the issues that are before us with the Ford government? Bill, I think that uh, this is sort of the end of the beginning. Um, the end of the beginning? Okay. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of our members didn't really want to recognize that we were facing the bully and, and, and all the things that people were we were telling them that we might be facing. And so the turnout that we had that Shirley talked about, six busloads, that's unprecedented for us. And, and Six busloads from Peterborough? From this region. From and this also, region, And yeah. also there was probably easily 100. 173 was our final. Total, yeah. yeah, across the province. But, 173 but, buses. But locally we had easily 100 more or more that drove themselves down. Yes. They carpooled. They right. took the go and they met us down there. And I think people are realizing that this government is for real, that they don't uh, – that uh, edu public education is in their sights and they want to dismantle it. They want to dismantle it significantly. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, there are those who maintain – that the education sector is bloated and the teachers must lower their expectations in order to help the province deal with its finances. How do you respond to these critics? People have smoke coming I'm, out of their ears. I'm, I'm yes. gonna, well, and I'm going to speak up. Like, uh, I have to say, for the members that we represent, the average QP member makes $37,000 a year. Yeah. So we are not bloated. 
by yeah. any means whatsoever. But we work as an integral part of a huge team that is committed to providing key services <clears throat> to students. Like we are the reason why there is a public education, a publicly funded, publicly delivered education system that is second to none throughout the world. And so I I challenge. Well, yeah, and I agree with that. And let's also remember that Ontario is one of the lowest per capita spenders on on public programs in in the country. And as far as education goes, I mean... that's public education? No, public uh, programs, period. Services. Public services. Public services. Yeah. Okay. And it just, you can't look at education as just a bottom line, like a line on a budget and just say, cut it like that. You have to consider all the real life impacts that it's going to have. And that's what I think one of the disappointing things has been is the lack of understanding from this government about what those impacts are going to be. Right. Surely. I actually think it's a shame for uh, the government to say that we need to lower our expectations for education because we are working with the most vulnerable in our society. We're giving them the best start we possibly can. And why should we lower expectations for the students that we're working with every day? I think that's shameful that they would expect teachers that care about their students that make this education system work and our education workers. We couldn't do it without the team we have in the school. And I think it's shameful for them to say that we need to lower expectations for these students and we're giving them the best start they possibly can get to be successful. Sure. Sure. Bill, if I just chime in there, I mean, just to give us a little bit of a historical perspective, um, First of all, and, and what Laura, Laura said about salary, yeah, teachers get paid well and public education workers get paid well. But we've, if you look back, uh, if you look back uh, to even 20, 30 years, we've barely kept up with inflation. If you look at, if you correct for inflation, our salaries haven't really kept up with inflation. So that's a, that's an aside. But more importantly, if we go back 20 years, uh, uh, not even 20 years ago, the um, graduation rate in Ontario was around 60%. And right. uh, for the last 15, 20 years, we've been working, especially in the secondary panel, to create pathways to ensure kids don't get lost and eight and a half, almost nine out of ten kids graduate from high school. You know, they go to university, they, they go to college, they go to the workplace, or they, or they go into the trades. And so we've created these pathways for folks, and we have a graduation rate that's well over 85%. And that's actually important, but that's, I think, what we worry with these cuts coming is what's at stake here. How's that 85% compare across the rest of the country? I don't have statistics on how it compares to other jurisdictions, but I do know that in my career, in the 20 years that I've been involved in public education, it has steadily risen, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think it's a credit to the work that we do, all of us as a team. Okay, now one of the tenets of education, of course, is that uh, uh, you, you base decisions on facts and science matters, evidence matters. And uh, the Ford government seems to be able to press ahead with their agenda in spite of the lack of evidence to support their claims. For example, Lisa Thompson's now infamous claim that larger high school classes will somehow make Ontario students more resilient in the workplace uh, has no support whatsoever in the research literature. Yet Thompson presses on oblivious to this lack of evidence. What can be done to counter this sort of defiant denial of facts? I think what we're doing right now, you know, the key to it is getting out and speaking. Our members know this. You know, the people that we work with know that it's completely unfounded. But the key is to getting out and speaking to the community um, and getting out to the grassroots and and starting to talk to them and having them support us. And that's what we saw last Saturday. Right. We're people from all walks of life supporting education workers. And and that was huge. Sure. 
Um, OEC has also started, uh, you know, these informational campaigns. We have a, a campaign started now, a No More campaign. If you go to nomore.ca, it helps um, defunct, I guess, a lot of the, the misconceptions made by the government. It's also important for teachers to actually come out and tell their stories, you know, teachers in the classroom who see what's going on and who know what the actual impact is. And this has been the, the concern, you know, the, the government likes to talk about all the consultations they're doing, but they haven't actually consulted with teachers yeah. who are the ones on the front line who know right. what's going on, who care about the students and know right. what, what it means, what, what needs to be done. So that's a big concern. Right. Um, I, I have to agree. I think one of the things that we're doing is stressing the importance of actually having conversations and having conversations based on facts that we know as teachers. So whether that we're talking to our parents um, in our classrooms to talk about the effects um, of cuts that are going to have on the classroom, because we know what it means um, when they increase class sizes. We know what it means when they reduce the supports that we have in our classrooms. We know what it means for the students. And it's really important for us to continue having those conversations and making sure that um, we're getting the truth out as best we can. And we do that by having a lot of discussions. Great. Now, sure, go ahead. Then. Oh, Bill, I just want to jump in there in terms of... Uh we got to call out every time our MPP doesn't tell the truth, or right. or the or the minister doesn't tell the truth, or or she 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 parrots a line that's just a, a plucking something out, like you know the grade six didn't do well on a tests one year in math, <laughs> and therefore we're all failing math, and it's just not true, uh, and that's the the sad part of it. But in in specific, and this is the one that's hard for me locally. Uh, Dave Smith keeps telling people that you know we're not going to feel the cuts and it's going to be okay, and and he's obsessed with caring. About about people and you know I've got 36 of my members who don't have a job next year um, I, we're looking at a 25% reduction in the staff in every one of our high schools in this local region, in, in every community in Ontario. And if you take 25% of the staff out of a high school, when during that period of time where kids are figuring out what to do with the rest of their lives, I mean, this is, this is cruel and it's unusual. This is 25% next year? Well, it's a graduated uh, oh, right. stretch. Um, okay. We're on the we're on the stretch board right now. Uh, so next year I, we're looking at probably about um, a ten percent reduction across uh, our, our. We have fifty five, right. not quite ten percent, but fifty five teachers fewer next year delivering in, KP, in KPR. Yeah, fifty five in in secondary alone. Yeah, um, and so delivering the same to the same number of students. So we're already dealing with fifty five reduction in in teachers. Okay. And just to give you another example sure, of the, the misinformation or misconceptions, our MPP will tell you that it's a cap at 28, when in fact it's a board-wide average. So it, it shows also a lack of understanding with this government about what, what the, how staffing is done across the province and locally, and therefore they don't even understand what the impact is mm-hmm. on, on the students right. and in the schools. Now, critics often cite the fact that enrollment is dropping while staff counts are going up. And so how do you respond to this sort of um, charge? Why do today's students need more teachers than previous decades? Well, if you were listening to Vic Fideli on Thursday, he claimed that enrollment's going up. So, uh, but I oh. I can say that our numbers and numbers have been going down of all staff, and we've seen it in all groups. I can speak for ours. Um, we actually negotiated an increase of staffing for the last two years that they right. have abruptly just cut off, and that right. will, those members will automatically um, not be moving into the following year because the funding's already been cut from so, that. So, what what are the facts about enrollment? Is enrollment now level? Is it beginning to climb? I mean, what? Well, 
so elementary wise, like for Kawartha Pine Ridge, sure. um, we have a hundred new teachers for the 2018, 2019 school year. So starting in September of, of this school year, we have a hundred brand new teachers. So enrollment in Kawartha Pine Ridge is actually going up at the elementary level. We know that that's going to hit secondary because yeah, yeah. there you go all the way through. Yeah. Um, and our projected enrollment for next year is, um, is also going to go up. Um, which means that for us as a local elementary wise, we still need um, more teachers to to uh, fill those spots. So elementary, so enrollment is going up, and the government wants to reduce the number of teachers. Yes. yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so my question would be, why do we want to go backwards? I mean, the last fifteen years. Yeah. I mean, despite what the government will, ha- will tell you, our test scores have been going up consistently. There was a little dip in grade six math by about four percent. Other than that, everything else in grade three, grade nine, everything has gone up consistently in fifteen years. So why do we want to turn around and suddenly? So obviously, the smaller class sizes has worked. So why do you want to turn around and suddenly add more kids in there, take away supports, and take away teachers and programming? Why do we want to take a step backwards? Why not continue on this trend that we've we've accomplished? And there is, just to build on that too, there is nothing being considered for the injection of students that are going to be entering in as the Ontario Autism Program has totally changed. Um, So we have an injection of students that are going to be coming in with absolutely no increase in funding to provide the supports that these students desperately need. And so what will happen is we will just start pulling supports from other students to try and meet the needs of those students, which will just cause further and further issues. And I agree. We're we're taking. I would say more than fifteen years. We're taking a couple of decades uh, steps back. And I I know that from our perspective, we've seen a steady decline of services in the classroom. And we hear that from our teaching colleagues all the time. Where you used to have an EA in your classroom, you're lucky to get an EA for about fifteen minutes a day. And by the way, That's needs right. are going up. Mm-hmm. There's much more. Now, much- why is that? There's just more needs as far as mental health issues, special education needs, and and students. There's a much more diverse population in our classrooms. So those needs are going up. And instead of helping these students, they're taking away. Um, So, and I also, like our class... Classroom structures are changing. We have an inclusive education model um, where, you know, people would say, oh, well, we had large class sizes and we survived just fine, but classes were different. So now we have an inclusive education model where we have all students that should be able to be successful in a classroom setting. um, But the services have never been there to support those students to the, to the breadth that they should have been. And now we're going to see a decrease of those services. And so when we talk about, when we're talking about, you know, challenging some of the the um miss the the untruths that we hear from the government um the ontario government said well don't worry we're going to we're going to provide $12,000 or $12,300 for every student that comes there, for every autism student that's coming into the system. Well, the problem is every student gets that, whether they have special needs oh, or whether they don't have special right. needs. Every single student that comes into our system gets that base funding. Um, so that is just basically saying that they're just lying and saying, you know, we're actually supporting it, but they're not because it actually already exists. Right. Now, I've heard also that uh, online er- learning is uh, raising its threatening head and that uh, for, for secondary uh, students, uh, they are going to be taking more online courses. And I was discussing with, uh, uh, with colleagues about that. I do, I do some contract teaching at Fleming, uh, And I pointed out that our MPP, uh, of course, is uh, saying, well, you know, he, he took a master's uh, online learning. That's true. When he was in his mid-40s. 
Right. As a highly, and he, he happens to have a computer background. So, uh, I mean, and good for him. You know, he's got an MBA, online learning from the University of Fredericton. Super. Uh, but how does that play out for a 14, 15 year old who, who doesn't have those IT skills? Well, let me tackle that first. I mean, our, our kids have been, um, immersed in technology from, from early ages and they come to high school with uh, some of them with great tech skills and some of them without, um, we've been doing online learning or e-learning as they, as it were for over 10 years, uh, in KPR. And I can't speak for OECTA, but, uh, certainly we have learned a lot in 10 years about which kids it works with and which kids it doesn't. Um, and in, for most for most kids, they don't have the discipline that you need. And it's not about technology or learning how to use technology. They, they already have some of those skills. What they need is a teacher and they need the supports in a class to keep them on the rails. Many kids don't complete the courses when they do them online. Right. Many kids struggle without having that additional support and uh, they're not successful and they drop out. Right. So I have many issues with this one. Um, So I I teach kids every year who take these e-learning courses. And and like Dave said, it's become more and more prevalent, I guess. And I find I've never had a student who said they've enjoyed their experience with an e-learning course. You get your higher end kids who like that one on one with the teacher and want to ask questions right away. And they don't get that in the e-learning course. Then you get other kids who just can't handle the time management and can't plan that stuff on their own. So they they struggle and either drop out, fail. And more often than not, these are the lowest marks kids get and they don't get much out of the course. You also have to figure too. I teach students right now who don't have computers at home. I can't. I set up Google Classroom because it's easier for a lot of kids to hand in assignments. But I can't exclusively do that because some students just can't do that. And there's also right. some students who don't have access to Wi-Fi. So what are these kids going to do? Right. So there's a lot of issues here. And again, it's just the the mis the unknowing by this government are just putting policies in place and not understanding what that what it means. Right. Bill, I just want to also... Sure. Oh, now I've lost my thought, um, so I'll just drop it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all right. Well, now, in uh, in an April 5th letter to Lisa Thompson, uh, Harvey uh, Bischoff, uh, president of OS- OSST, am I pronouncing his name? It's his name, Bischoff. Bischoff. Harry Bischoff. Uh, Harry Bischoff, hey, Harry. Uh, president of o- OSSTF, uh, said, how can you and your ministry implement a plan that so directly attacks students, teachers, and schools? When you cut education funds, Funding, you fail to recognize the significant dividends education pays down the road with better jobs, higher incomes, and a healthier province. So Ontario is no longer as attractive a destination for new businesses. How can your unions convince Ford of the long-term business damage of these decisions? I'm not sure if it's really Ford that we need to convince because in my opinion, from what I've seen, there he's steadfast in his opinion. I think what we need to do is talk to his base. Um, right. And, you know, talking to his base and to those folks, and his base tends to be rural Ontario. It, it's not downtown Toronto anymore. So it's incumbent on all of us who live in rural Ontario to get out and be talking to the base, those people who did vote for him, because that's where we've seen him changing his mind is when his base starts to push back. And we right. saw it with the Green Belt. We saw it with the Ontario yes. Autism Program. Yes. We saw it. So we have seen where he has moved off of it, but it won't happen just because I'm standing up in front of 30,000 people banging my you know, hand on a podium. It means getting out and having those really good conversations to those folks in rural Ontario so that they can start talking to their representatives and saying, this is not the way to go. Well, you know, you, you, you raise... Uh 
a, a very pertinent point, Laura. Um, I cannot remember when the last time was during a uh, provincial or federal election when literature from a certain political party arrived at our household in, um, in downtown Peterborough, right near downtown Peterborough. They know. <laughs> they know who, who we're voting, uh, who mm-hmm. votes for them. And, and so you're right. And so how do you grapple with that? You know, I, we all have friends in the community. I mean, not all of our friends are teacher friends, and and we have we have friends who own businesses in the community yeah. and so forth. And I think those conversations have to be had with everyone that we know to explain to them the impact this is going to have again. And in, for my for me, it's the local high schools, but in, yeah. it's in all of our schools that these opportunities need to be created for kids to be successful down the road. And and I think if people understand the impacts, then we sometimes can convince them that maybe the the leader of their party isn't uh, have have the long term interest uh, and the success that uh, he thinks he's going to have. Right. All right. I've had the experience uh, working uh, at Fleming College. Uh, was asked to uh, deliver a communication program uh, to uh, students who are studying computer forensics. In other words. Uh, to work for security services, police forces, etc. And to my amazement, uh, I mean, I was easily the least computer literate person in the room, I assure you. They all arrived at class with huge laptops, and about the second or third class, I said, oh, why are you taking this from me? You can take it online. And a few of them said, because we want to have a teacher in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, if you folks want a teacher in the room, what about the people who are further down uh, uh, the the ability curve in terms of IT for learning with these online courses? So that that was a bit of a wake up. Um, are there other things that come to mind in terms of points of leverage on these issues with the public? And we've talked about business. We've talked about the base. It's about the services. Right. I mean, just as you mentioned, you know, folks want teachers in the classroom. Folks want custodians cleaning their schools. They want secretaries at the front door to buzz them in. They want their children to be safe and secure when they're at school. They want their children to be provided with supports for CYWs and EAs and ECEs so that they are having education success. It's about the services, and that's what all four of us represent is quality services that are being provided publicly through public funds. I think it's important. I mentioned this earlier on as well that the classroom teachers talk about their experiences whenever they have the chance. I'm I'm a classroom teacher currently, and I'm also a parent. I have two kids in the system right now, and and I worry when they get to high school. My son, for example, loves to play piano. He's going to be in the talent show at his elementary school coming up. Is there going to be a music program available for him when he gets to high school? Yes. Yes. I mean, with all these cuts, the way it is, the board's scrambling right now to fill the core programming. Those are the classes and the programs that are going to get cut. Those are the things that are going to be missing. So if, if you look at it. From a parent perspective, parents can start realizing, well, you know, this isn't about teachers. This is about students and what they have access to and what their experience in, in school is going to be uh, going forward and what how that's going to help them prepare them for after high school. Yes, I, I've heard the same concerns about uh, sports, phys ed and, and yeah. inter, intramural and 
between schools. Yes, please. Um, I think that another way that we have to work on getting our message out, and I think we're doing this now, and I think that April 6th when we were at Queen's Park was a good testament to this, was the um, the support of other affiliates in labor organizations. And I think that's really important um, that we continue to build those um, those alliances that we have. Um the cuts that the government is making isn't just to education. There are other cuts they're making to health care, mm-hmm. um, that they're making to um, social services. They're making to legal aid. That they're just they're making cuts that affect the most vulnerable, all of the vulnerable uh, people in our society. And it's really important that we do work with the nurses and we work with um, other labor organizations, um, be part part of our labor councils to develop that um, that relationship so that we can all stand together. As one unified voice to say, hang on a second, you're, we're all doing this frontline work, we're all providing service, and you are cutting that service, and it has detrimental effects. Right, right. And just uh, one more thing. I mean, uh, you're quite brave to be here with us today, Bill, because we're all, uh, we're all, you know, the the perception the government wants to say is that we're all union thugs, right? And you know, uh, and we're we're big mean mean union people, and we only care about ourselves. But you know, the unions exist, and and education unions exist so that our members can do their jobs really well. Our members, we, we, I'm sure we have. We represent hundreds of people who are preparing for their work tomorrow, making lesson plans and thinking about the day and figuring out what they're going to do this week right now at, on Sunday. And uh, they're, they're incredibly dedicated. And I think that if the public gets to meet some of our union leaders and gets to know who we are and the dedication we have and our, and our members' dedication to the work they do, that we can also change people's minds. It's a good idea to have a few... Uh a few months of mortgage saved up. What? Now, I, I realize I'm asking you to sing, uh, to, to sing songs out of school because this is union strategy. You can't tell us if there's going to be a strike. But, I mean, can you say anything about contracts that are up for renegotiation? I know some of the unions are up for renegotiation. All of us. All of us. All of us. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> so... Uh, if you were betting people, what are the odds? Well, I'm, I'm not a betting person, uh, Bill, and I, and I wouldn't want to market in the fear mongering that our government gets into. But yeah, you know, and, we, and that's a good point. We we really and we we were cautious with our own members, and some in some respects, but we also. Our, our members tend to be planners and they like things that would be predictable and they want to know what's coming down the pipe. And our message really has been clear to them, you know, that we are going to exhaust every opportunity and avenue to speak and negotiate and work with this government to get fair collective agreements. That's what we always try to do. We don't want a disruption. Nobody wants a labor disruption. Our members don't want it. The public doesn't want it. The kids don't want it. And, and well, may, there may be a few high school kids who, who want it. <laughs> well, that's true. But, but I'll tell you, that uh, it's certainly not in anyone's interest, and it's certainly not in our interest. We don't want to miss work. We love right, what right. we do, and uh, right. we want to keep doing it. However, if every opportunity is exhausted, and we've demonstrated to the public and to our members that this is no other alternative, then work stoppages are a possibility. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Yeah, let's be clear. Again, I'll echo the thoughts that Dave just mentioned there. Like, teachers want to be in the classroom. Okay, there isn't a single teacher out there who wants to go on strike or have any kind of strike action. They want to be in the classroom. So we enter every negotiation year to good faith negotiations with the government, try and get the best contract we can for our members and for the students. 
Now, the government has chosen not necessarily to do that. They've been bargaining in the media, so to speak. A lot of times they've come up with these different policies, like the Regulation 274, which has to do with hiring, the class sizes. These are things that are normally reserved for the bargaining table. Instead, they have come out and done this openly in the media before even coming to the table. So we're going to go to negotiations, which are now scheduled, I think, for end of April to begin. And we're going to go in there trying to get the best deal we can. And, and like Dave said, we will exhaust every possible step before. Nobody wants to go on strike. Nobody wants to do any job action. And they will. we will exhaust every possible thing before we do that. And like Dave's union, your union is up for renegotiation in August? Yeah, our contract's up August 31st. Yeah, everyone in the province does. Yes. Anyone who's an education worker's contract expires. End of August. Okay. Yep. So, and we're a little bit different because, uh, you know, Thursday we listened carefully to the budget and noted that it was the teachers' unions that were discussed and, (laughs) and we're in there as well. Um, I think there's some key concerns. I mean, I agree. I echo, like, none of us, nobody wants to, no one wants to put any of their members out on strike. That is never right. uh, the goal of any um, union activist or or union sure. uh, leader. But I think there are some key things that we took away. Um, you know, there's a budget that's been proposed that doesn't cover the cost of inflation, uh, let alone any projected right. new services, any needs that are there. Um, there are concerns that they're attacking some fundamental pieces of our teaching colleagues' contracts with class sizes and right. hiring practices. Practices. Um, and, you know, there's also consultations happening in a couple of weeks in regards to zero wage uh, provisions and the threat of legislation. So I agree. There's a lot of things that this government is doing already to signal um, a pretty tough round of bargaining. And I think we as CUPE are, you know, aligning ourselves with our teaching colleagues, but we're very clear. We're going in and we're going to be asking for the best contract possible for our membership. And we work under a no concession bargaining mandate. And so we are not willing to take any steps back. Um, Our Mm -hmm. members deserve um, to have safe, quality workplaces. And and that's what I'm here to do for them. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I probably echo everything that um, that my uh, three friends have said in this room as well. Um, when we are going around and talking to teachers, what we hear them say all the time, they ask us, like, what is this going to mean? Do I have to pull extracurriculars? Because that is my favorite part of the day. Those yes. relationships that I get to build with my students outside of the classroom helps actually build community, and it helps me build those really strong relationships with students so that I can support them outside of what's the curriculum in the classroom. And the research says that yeah. helps keep students at risk in school. That's right. So many say, That's I right. wouldn't have stayed in were it not for yeah. basketball or That's right. whatever. And so it's really, it's, it is really important. And um, I think like Dave said, you know, that our teachers care about their students, deeply mm-hmm. care about their students and are incredibly passionate about making sure that our education system is the best education system. And if that's what we need to fight for, we're going to fight for our students because we see um, their lives every single day in our classroom and we are trying to support them every single day. And we see the effects of any kind of um, cuts to education, the real effects that it'll have. And I think it's really important, all of us, um, when we uh, are fighting for our students, that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for them and for the best they can get. 
Okay. And we Please. saw the students are, are understanding that. We saw that with the Students Say No movement, mm-hmm. uh, where the students walked out across the, the province. Um, no, it was not like our government would tell you. None of us put any child up to that. As a matter of fact, my daughter led one, and I live in a different city than her during the week. So trust me, I had <laughs> nothing to do with her doing it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, our students, um, you've got to remember that a lot of our students have already lived through some pretty tumultuous education bargaining years. Um, And so these kids are pretty savvy and and they see the work that is going in from their teachers and their education workers. They know that we're fighting for them. And it's really heartening to see that they're on side with us. Right. Now, I can tell you, Bill, just from my perspective, too, like if I had asked my daughter to go out on those protests, uh, (laughs) she would not have gone. Right. And nor would any of my if we've directed the kids. We know kids well enough that if if it's an adult's idea, they are going to be uh, opposing it. Right. And so this really I was amazed and surprised by how many. But it made me think, why are they so upset about this? And for me, I think kids really identify with their school. And with the and with the with the folks that uh, run the school, the people, whoever they are, and uh, this government has sidestepped everyone and kicked those kids really hard in the stomach, mm-hmm. and they are upset about it. And I think it is probably I don't know foolish of this government to ignore uh, the real reason those kids went out last week. Yeah, I, I, frankly, I think Rump. it's kind of insulting as well that the government would think that students aren't intelligent enough to know about the issues mm-hmm. and aren't organized enough to organize something like this. Like they would need the help of somebody else to yes. do it. So yes. I think it's a lack of respect again for for the students and their knowledge and what they want. They're in the know. They know what the these these cuts are going to have the effects going to have on their programming on their schools, and, they, and they're not going to stand up for it. Yes, we had a group of, uh, there was a group of uh, student activists interested in environmental issues in the first hour this afternoon from uh, four to five. And they were, uh, they did not take kindly to the suggestion that, well, yeah, you were told to do this by your teachers. They said no. And I think it's important (laughs) that folks also remember that they are tomorrow's voters. Well, exactly. Right. So, you know, these folks are seeing, these kids are growing up and they're seeing this and they're seeing, you know, there's just this one-sided we're going to run all over you, and they're going to be voting next year. So yeah. it'd be, you know, smart to take a listen to them. Oh, one of them this afternoon, uh, this will be her first time voting this federal election. Yes. And she said yes. <laughs> yeah. to, to your point. Now, critics say that, well, the reason Ontario has to do this, and thank goodness we have Doug Ford, he's taking on the challenges because the Liberals spent so much money, we have this deficit. What is uh, our, our Ontario's taxes compared to other Canadian provinces? Are we outrageously in debt or are we in the middle of the pack? Um, because my own economic simple-mindedness says that, well, if you don't have enough money, what you do is you raise taxes. <laughs> but that seems to be... It's, it seems so simple, Bill. Um, <laughs> w- w- where am I know, wrong? Here? Well, so, you know, and I've been trying to find this out, too, because uh, for the last, in my adult life, corporate taxes have only gone down. And our needs to our, our social service needs have only gone up, and so the the corporate tax rate in Ontario is the lowest in Canada, uh, 
yeah. uh, by far. In fact, it's lower than many jurisdictions in the United States. And I didn't uh, know that. it's uh, so when we think of ourselves as being a socialist state in Canada, yes. it's not quite as, uh, as it's not quite true. And uh, you know, in my mind. I'm happy to pay my taxes, my burden, my share. I, I, yes. earn, I earn a good living. I want to pay my share. And I don't understand – this is a fundamental thing that I don't understand – why corporations and businesses don't pay the same rate that ordinary people do. They're, right. I mean if, if we had that – if we had that at all, then we wouldn't actually have to choose between, you know, have all these false choices ahead of us. We could fund the transportation needs of Toronto and all the rural needs in Ontario and take care of our elderly and health care. And of course, while we're here today, have the best public education system in Ontario, uh, in Canada. Uh, Maybe the world. Yeah. And I, I always refer back to our um, president of QB Ontario, Fred Hahn, will always say, no, Ontario does not have a revenue problem. It has a spending problem because they are spending on corporate welfare. Right. And right. so we need to start actually using the term that it is. Right. People will say to me, oh, well, welfare, 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 public services. But really, we're spending far more on corporate welfare. I mean, tax breaks. Yeah, tax yes. breaks. <laughs> it's, it's huge tax breaks. And they claim that Ontario is open for business. But I mean, we've been seeing tax breaks for my entire adult life and I'm not seeing any real benefit of it. The trickle down theory in economics has been shown not to work. Um, and it's time to do something different. And we know that this, um, particular budget that was presented is a huge deficit. It has a ton of spending, but not where we need it to be, where it would be helping the most vulnerable. We are putting it towards new license plates and we're putting it towards, you know, tailgating and being able to buy alcohol at 9 a.m. And meanwhile, we have the most vulnerable in our society languishing on the sidelines. And to me, that's just, it's, it's not human. It's inhumane. Well, it's puzzling because I know on the municipal level, uh, living here in Peterborough, our taxes uh, go up about one and a half, two, two and a half, sometimes three percent a year, uh, and it's another maybe a hundred dollars on the I guess close to five thousand a year our family pays. Do I grumble as I'm sitting on my neighbor's porch having a beer? For sure, I grumble, but I pay it because. I live in Peterborough. I need those services. I need the library. Mm-hmm. I need the police. I need the emergency services. Uh, you want your roads plowed. I want your roads plowed. Exactly. So how come that logic doesn't translate to provincial and, and federal? There's taxes? a lot of fear mongering about debt and deficit. Right. Um, that happens. And you heard it um, with Vic Fidelli on Thursday right. talking about the debt and the deficit. And people tend to put that back into like personal debt. Nobody wants to be in personal debt. Nobody wants to be running their household budget. But government is not like a person. No. But no. <laughs> but the government is not a person. Right. And, you know, if you are giving tax breaks to, as we said, the corporations at the expense of your future, where is that going to leave the province as a whole? Right. Now, in terms of what we're talking about in so many issues, and it came up this afternoon with the student activists. How do we read social media? How do we sort through the various spins that are out there and, and try and identify what's really happening and uh, not be misled by these various campaigns? And they can be directed against the unions, they can be directed against specific unions, or or just uh, anti-spending in general. How do we sort through those? 
Well, I think it starts with getting different perspectives as well, not just, you know, don't just go out and get read the Toronto Sun or don't just read your Facebook, <laughs> well, yeah. you know, your Facebook feed or whatever. Right, right. Uh, you know, ask around, get in the know. That's how you educate yourself, right, is asking questions, getting different perspectives, even if they may not um, be what you think necessarily, maybe opposing to what you believe originally, at least you get another perspective and then you can make an educated decision on that. Sure, sure. It's funny that you mentioned it because we just provided a course to some of our leaders on that exact thing. Oh, do um, tell. <laughs> and I think we probably could have done it for a full week and still had another month of instruction <laughs> right. that could have done. It, it's digging deeper. Um, there's a lot of just quick shares that are happening, cute memes that just get shared and shared and shared. And one of the things that I always advise folks is take a look at what the source was. Um, right. Just because it, it looks like it's something that you agree with. Many of them are troll farming. Um, just to get likes, it was how we do know um, that Ontario Proud, for instance, yes. um, had the biggest impact during the provincial election, completely funded by corporations that were able to sidestep, you know, yeah. uh, election laws. Third party to funding. Do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you really need to take a look at what was the source of it. And just because maybe it's a, a meme that resonates with you doesn't necessarily mean it should be something that should be shared um, because you could be propagating like alt right you know, hatred and, and things like that. So we have to just be a little bit careful. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, one of the things as, as educators with our students, we teach, we teach them to be critical thinkers. We teach them to ask those questions, to have a look at where is this coming from? Um, and is, are, is someone just stating fat, stating just, oh, this is what we believe. And, and I think I read newspaper articles where they, well, research says, and they'll quote something, but they actually don't quote the research. So it sounds like they know what they're talking about. And it sounds like they're the final authority, but maybe they're not. And so we have to make sure that we are taking a step back and asking those those really uh, critical questions and looking at where that information is coming from and researching. Like we can't just ask questions. Asking questions is part of that, but we also have to look for those other um, places to get information to do that comparative. Right, right. Now, um, I was looking back at my notes here and um, back to OSSTF. Uh, Bischoff also makes the claim that uh, Lisa Thompson's plan means, and I think we've already heard it here this afternoon, uh, less time for teachers to spend in another class uh, supporting students who require extra help, fewer courses available for students to choose from as they move through the system, yep. uh, reduced access to, to guidance, EAs, yep. therapists, psychologists, social workers. All that true, yes. Uh, ECC, uh, early childhood education, and other important members of the team. Fewer professionals in school schools available to volunteer their time for extracurricular programs, right. clubs and teams, the football coaches, the soccer coaches. Sure. And uh, fewer professionals to support students with special needs. I, I, and also... Um, fewer people to help uh, the influx of uh, new Canadians from non-English speaking countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we have, uh, you know, there's a few Syrian families just moved in and so far so good uh, with their, their kids in school, but um, it's a strain. Uh, so given the strength of these claims, how can the government ignore the obvious? What strategies can your union bring to bear in the government during negotiations to make them do what's best for students. I mean, isn't that the holy grail of bargain? Let's do what's best for students. Mm-hmm. All this says you ain't doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell, let's tell a little story here. I mean, our schools, some of our schools in, in, this, in this community have shrunk in size, right? So Norwood, uh, Clark, 
uh, Port Hope. These are schools that have gotten smaller, and yet they still need to de- deliver sort of the core services to all the kids, run all the teams, have a library, have a guidance, have, have all the services there. And you stretch everybody further, right, that way, uh, Bill. And so, I mean, what we're faced with really quickly, and this is the thing that people need to understand, with 25% fewer adults in buildings, they still people are still going to expect all of those other things to run in a school right. and those opportunities there. And, and it'll just stretch people thinner and it'll be harder on, on people. And, and they'll either, they'll either break or, uh, they will, uh, they just have to say no to certain things. And so things will go undone. And some of those things might be uh, extracurriculars. How do we commit that? How do we uh, change the government? What's our strategy? Is that the question? Yep. Well, we cannot give up. Because it, there's too much at stake. I think, yeah. and, I, and I'd be happy to have this conversation here with you and with anyone else who wants to have this conversation. I'm sure my friends here would agree that we just can't because we've had this one, you know, one kick in the belly that we, we give up. Um, and I think maybe even going back to what you said about social media, we need social media sometimes to galvanize our own support. It may be a bit of an echo chamber, but our membership need to know that there is something worth fighting for. And that can be sometimes really important too. Let's rem- uh, remember as well, many of the school boards are not happy with this either. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many school boards across the province have already spoken out against this and sent letters to Mrs. Thompson. I don't know if you just read today, there was uh, a school board in her riding that wrote a letter to her asking her to stop these cuts and to rethink all of this. So the school boards are not on board with this either because they see the issues going on in the schools and how this is going to affect. Those smaller schools you're talking about, they might even have trouble. They're talking about having trouble running even those core programs because of the cap, the averages uh, going across the board. So what's going to happen, not just to your, your other programs or your smaller uh, programs, but what's going to happen to your core programs? Are they going to be available because of this? Right. True. Um, and I, you know, for, if we're just talking locally, the, the, um, the Kawartha Pine Ridge board, um, is facing in like right now an $8.5 million shortfall in funding. And what's really frustrating wow. is the government said, Oh, you know what? We're leaving primary classes the same. We're not doing anything with FDK. We're going to increase, you know, junior intermediate by one and we're going to increase secondary. And that's all they said. But what they didn't say was all of the other things that they're taking away that they're not funding properly in school boards. So our school board is left with $8.5 million shortfall. They already overspend about $5 million in spec ed that they don't have, that they overspend. Um, so if you put that all together, that's an incredible amount of money. So that's 8.5 plus 5 million. So yep. that's 13. Yep. So, uh, oh. so, so all of that, when you put that together, we have to talk about what that actually means in the classroom. We have lost reading recovery teachers, and those are the teachers, not all of them, but we've lost yeah. some. Those are the teachers that sit with our children um, in the primary years to get their reading skills up to right. where they need to be so they're successful. Because research has said if t- students aren't reading at grade level by the time they're in grade three, they'll always be behind. So yeah. our reading recovery teachers help those students become successful. We've lost some um, support for our, our English language learners. Right. Um, we have lost some support for um, our self-regulation classes. Those are the classes where students that have high behavior needs, that have a really right. hard time managing uh, in the regular classroom, we have special special classrooms for those. The board, the trustees are now left having to make a decision. How, who do we support? Are we going to support our students that are on the spectrum that are coming in right. with zero 
community support? Right. Or are we going to support our students who are really struggling to manage their behavior? And they have to make a decision because there's not enough money to do both. And I both. think that is, that's actually, it's shameful yeah. that we have to make a decision about who might be more deserving of, of supports in our education system. Well, Dave, Robin, Shirley, and Laura, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, busy, busy, uh, I'm I'm sure, weekend and uh, season you're going through. Uh, Thank you for this. Uh, The podcast of this discussion will be posted tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, the next day, and we'll get that up. And thanks again. Thank Thank you. you. All right.